0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, so yeah, as you said, the last couple of weeks we've been nicely working our way in order uh, through the Psalms. We've had Michael Psalm 51, uh, Jimmy 121, Jared 130, and now sorry to all those people with a bit of OCD like Jimmy, but we're going to go all the way back to Psalm 7, righty. Uh, so we'll open in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for David, Lord, and we thank you for this psalm that he's written. Uh, We pray that you will use me this morning. It will be your words, Lord, and not mine. It will be more of you and less of me, Lord, we pray. Amen. Uh, So about six months ago, my wife and I uh, finally moved into our brand new house after about a two-year process. Uh, There's so many exciting things about moving into a new place. Um, And one thing that we'd never really had in all our previous places where we'd lived um, is that we'd never really had any proper relationships with any of our neighbours. Um, so we are both really wanting to make a conscious effort uh, to get to know them and become good friends with them. Uh, well, it hasn't started all so well to start with. I'm still hoping one day that we can get along well um, and even invite them to church, uh, but it hasn't started all so smoothly yet. Um, our first interaction with them was trying to sort out a dividing fence. Uh, this was rather difficult because it hadn't quite moved into the place yet, so it was all having to be via email. Um, but anyway, we um, got some quotes done, ran it all by them, the type of fencing and everything. They were happy with everything, they agreed, pay their half, happy days, no dramas. Got the fence installed as per agreed, um, but now they wouldn't pay their half of the fence. They believed that the fence was too far into their property and it wasn't actually on the boundary. To put it in perspective, they thought the fence was eight centimetres more into their property than it was into ours. Anyway, going back and forth, getting fences out, with surveyors out, blah, blah, over about four to six weeks of trying to sort of sort this out. Um, thankfully, um, after all this, they agreed that the fence was in the right spot. They paid their half. Happy days. No dramas. Great. Not an awesome start, but awesome. We can move on from here. No dramas. Now we fast forward another six or so weeks. Um, now they've moved into this place. Uh, they started doing some landscaping, um, and specifically a garden bed out the front of the place. Uh, I came home from work one day, um, and this garden bed's been done out the front of the place, uh, which then, taking a closer look at it, and see, it is now about half a metre into our property. <laughs> Covered our water metre, and even went down on the nature strip, but like outside of the boundary. And I was like, what the heck? Or, like, I was fuming. Like I was literally, my initial thought was, well, it's in my property, I'm just going to rip it up then. But... <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, thankfully, I didn't do that. But it was, like, there was nothing wrong with the actual garden bed itself. The garden bed was fine. It was actually quite, done quite nicely. But it was more the principle. And I just wanted justice. Like, they gave us so much grief over eight centimetres, and then now go put a garden bed that's half a metre into ours. But thankfully, as I said, um, God didn't let us run into each other over the next few weeks. Um, <laughs> probably would have said something I would have regretted. Um, But after praying about it for a few weeks, God's definitely softened my heart. Um, Still probably not quite at peace about it, if you can hear my voice. (laughs) But I'm not wanting to do anything stupid or or irrational with it now, which is good. Has there been a time in your life where you've wanted justice and wanted to take it into your own hands? Maybe on the way here this morning you were cut off in traffic, so you wanted to tailgate them to get them back. Or maybe someone started rumours about you at work or school, and so you wanted to return serve and get them back that way. Our desire to get justice can easily get confused with our desire to get revenge. It can eat us away and make our hearts bitter and cold. So that's what's so great about this psalm. Psalm 7 is a psalm about justice. In a world where there's so much injustice, it's a great guide of how we should come to God in these times. You could sum up this psalm by saying, God is the God of perfect justice. We can take refuge in him and trust that he will give every evildoer what they deserve. Not too little, not too much. And because of this, we don't need to take justice into our own hands. So, a bit of background about this psalm. This psalm was a lyrical poem that was composed by David under strong mental emotion, which he sung to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. It is not written after the occasion, as David's looking back um, at a hard time in his life, it's not a happy psalm at all. But David is being raw when he's still in the trenches of this situation. There's no more context on who Cush was and what the words exactly were. However, we do know that King Saul was also a Benjaminite. So we instantly know that it was going to be hard for these two to be friends. We also read that Cush was not the only Benjaminite to raise an issue with David uh, post Saul's death. We read in 2 Samuel 16, um, there's a there's a character named Shimei uh, who is yelling and cursing at David in front of a crowd. He also starts throwing stones at him. Later on in 2 Samuel in chapter 20, we have another Benjaminite, Sheba, uh, who's described as a wicked man who also makes public accusations about David. We don't know exactly, but from reading the different ways David reacted to each of these situations, I can only assume that words kush, the, the words from Cush were much more severe than the other two. This psalm isn't the shortest and required lots of digging and reading over and over again. Uh, but after doing this, I found four main points that really stood out to me. The four points are four realities about God's character the psalm teaches us about God when it comes to justice. We have number one, God is a father. Number two, God is a judge. Number three, God is an avenger. And number four, that God is a victor. God is a father. So God is our heavenly father and he wants us to cry out to him. Any parent here today will know the feeling of wanting to protect your child. So I would imagine that your child not wanting your help when they so desperately need it would hurt. I'm super excited. Um, In the middle of this year, um, my wife and I are going to be having a little baby, and so very excited to to be a dad. Um, And I feel like I'm starting to know a little bit around sort of the feeling of wanting to protect. Uh, For example, driving the other day um, uh, in one of the many storms that we've been getting at the moment, uh, normally I wouldn't think twice, we'd just get in the car and drive wherever we're going. Yes, drive safely, but wouldn't consciously think about things. Um, But... Knowing that Ainsley has our baby growing inside of her maybe made things a little bit different. I was thinking, oh, which of our two cars is probably safer to drive in? I drove a bit more cautiously. Um, and even when we were at the shops, when it was a horrendous storm going on, I was like, oh, maybe we should just hang here for a bit. Thankfully, I didn't because the storm didn't pass. We would have been there all day. But we went on, went on and had our day. Um, but I feel like this, this helps a little bit. It gives me a very small insight of how God um, feels towards us. This wasn't something that I consciously thought, oh, I'm going to be a father, I need to start protecting more. It was just something that just happened. It was just natural instinct. And I feel that this gives an insight of how God feels towards each of us. God doesn't just have the ability to protect each of us, he has the desire to protect us. There's so much evidence in the Bible that shows that God protects his people. For example, we've got God sending Moses and Aaron to rescue the Israelites from Pharaoh in Egypt. We've got God shutting the mouths of the lions of, um, of the lions when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, puts Daniel in the lion's den for praying to God. We also have multiple stories in the Bible similar to Joseph's story in Genesis. I'd say if you asked Joseph multiple times throughout the journey, you wouldn't blame him for thinking that God wasn't protecting him during these times. Particularly when poor, innocent Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery or when he was wrongly put into prison. But by the end of the story, we can clearly see Jesus' hand, God's hand uh, to protect Joseph and his family. God is our perfect father, and the only one whose love is perfect and unconditional. So I cannot imagine how much he wants to protect each of us. So you can see in the start of this psalm, where David truly believes this, and that God is not a stranger to him, so he can take refuge in him. This is shown in verses 1 to 2. We read, Lord my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. In this text, David's humbly making himself very vulnerable towards God. To put this in perspective, this is not coming from some weak man who's got no one around him, he's a king who has a whole army at his disposal. Whatever the words were from Cush really affected David, and Cush really got under his skin with this injustice. But David is submitting to God and not taking it into his own hands. He does this as he trusts God will get justice and protect him from Cush. No matter how big or small the situation is, we can come to God, not only when there's injustice but also in times of need so whether it's injustice like an abusive relationship or bullying or the wars that we see overseas or whether it's in times of need with health issues and loneliness but how do we come to god what what can we do well i think there's four sort of main sort of key things that i think we can do to come to god number one is is spending time with him in prayer and being honest like david is there's no point hiding what's going on in our hearts jesus god knows what's going on in there so we can cry out to him reading his word, getting into his Bible and allowing God to talk to us. There's no point praying and asking God for answers and then not opening his word and listening to him. Coming to church, being together with the family of God and also with other broken people like ourselves and speaking to others in the church. If you've had anger or hurt towards someone, confess it to a brother or sister. I find it really helps so you can let it go and let God take control of it. Second point, God is a judge. The reason that we can come to our Father is that when we have been wronged is that we know that God is the perfect judge, so we can entrust matters of injustice to him. He's not a dodgy judge who can be bribed or lied to to make the wrong decision, but he makes the right decision every single time. The next few verses we read, uh, David still coming to God as as a judge this time. Verse 3. Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me, or have plundered uh, my adversaries without cause, may an enemy pursue and overtake me, may he trample me to the ground and leave my dust in the honour. And leave my honour in the dust. <laughs> the wrong way around there. Um, th- these are terrific, trick, tricky verses i found to try and figure out from what perspective David was speaking from. Is he humbly coming to God saying, let Cush trample me if I've done anything wrong? Or is he so confident that he's pleading his innocence here? Well, I think it might, it might be a bit of both going on here. I believe David is, is definitely coming humbly to God like we should do in our own lives, saying, examine me and the part I have played in this situation. David is able to be so humble and open with God because he knows that God is just and God will make the correct judgment. But David also wants justice, so much so that he's willing to put himself in the firing line of God's judgment. He knows that neither he nor his opposed can hide their thoughts or emotions from God. And neither can we. We cannot escape his judgment. There's nothing as individuals we can do to hide or trick from God. We then move on to verses 6 to 11, as we hear David continuing to call out to God for justice. In verse 6, Rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awaken for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord. According to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. David isn't asking God to do anything crazy here. He's just asking God to be God. David is not asking God to help him because of what David is feeling but because of how God would feel in this situation. We read David saying to God, rise up in your anger, talking to God. You have ordained a judgment. Let the people gather around you and take your seat on high over it. The big thing is is that David is not going to a God who doesn't care about injustice. He's going to the God who invented justice. David doesn't have to convince God. He's crying out to God because this is who God is, the source of all justice. Now verse 8 is another sort of tricky one, trying to figure out what David meant by vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness. It might sound like David thinks he's perfectly innocent, but we know he's not. We only have to go back to Psalm 51. If you missed it, Michael spoke it on a couple of weeks ago. So what what should we do with this, this verse then? What does it mean? I think it... Uh, Well, it might mean that he's protesting his innocence in this particular situation. One theologian puts it this way. Only the man who is sure of his innocence in the sight of God would venture to call for such doom upon himself in the case he had been found guilty of the thing wherewith he was charged. Regardless of what David meant in verse 8, it points us to Jesus Christ, the only one who was truly righteous and had integrity and yet the one who truly suffered injustice. God sent his son to earth to die on behalf of sinners and would pay the penalty for all of our injustice. If our faith is in Jesus, then we are the ones who have been vindicated because of Jesus' righteousness. Without Jesus, none of us can pray that prayer in verse 8. But with Jesus, we can call on God for justice for all the sins committed against us because he has paid the penalty for the sins that we ourselves have committed. Third point, God is an avenger. God is the avenger so we don't have to take matters into our own hands. But how do we come to God when we have sinned? What do we do? Well, I know a way that we probably shouldn't. Um, I have a younger brother, Tyrone, who's about three years younger than me. Uh, We're best mates now, but as as kids, classic brothers, we never always got along. Uh, He was always the classic annoying little brother, and I was always the perfect older brother. Never annoying, all sweet. Um, So anytime he'd provoke me, instead of trusting that my parents um, would get justice, I would always take it into my own hands. Often would probably create more damage than what he had done to me. An example of this might be something along the lines of this. Uh, We could be out for dinner or lunch or something like that, um, and for whatever reason, my brother reaches across and punches me, as brothers do. (laughs) Um, And mum or dad might say, Tyrone, you can't do that. We'll deal with you when we get home. But in my head, I'd go, no, this needs to be sorted now. I can't let someone else get justice for me. So whack, I'd punch him twice as hard. Which, of course, doesn't end well. We create a scene wherever we are. um, I end up getting in trouble. I don't really get justice for it by the end of it. However, as soon as the roles were reversed, if I was the instigator, I'd try and convince my brother, come on, punch me back, do something, get vengeance yourself, so that I could avoid trying to be sent to my room or whatever it was. So in reality, I knew that my parents would get justice, but I didn't trust that it would be enough when it was for me, and I couldn't let go of it and let them take control. Can we trust God when there's injustice in our lives? In the next few verses, we hear God's anger and wrath towards unrepented sin. In verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. These verses are pretty heavy. It's very clear how God feels towards unrepented sin and he doesn't leave much to the imagination. He sharpened his sword, strung his bow, he tips his fire, His arrows with fire. Any slander or accusation against David would have been very sig- significant for someone in David's position. He was responsible for seeing that right was upheld and justice was served as king. So as the king, realistically, he could have summoned his whole army to find and deal with Cush straight away. But instead, he brought it to God and trusted that God would get justice. We are called to do the same thing. God is the one to execute judgment on the ungodly. We aren't to take justice into our own hands. There are multiple verses in the Bible that tell us how to deal with people who have sinned against us. We read in Romans 12, 19, Friends, Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. If we continue reading in Romans, the very next verse says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. God is calling us to love and to pray for our enemies. On the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus also teaches us on this in Matthew five forty-three 43-45. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is much, much easier said than done. In fact, it's impossible to do in our own strength. Is much more than putting a smile on your face and just not saying those bad things out loud about people. It's costly because it means handing it over to God and truly forgiving them. We need to remember as well that we are not innocent. We have all sinned against God. We read in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. In Luke 17.10, we are, at best, unworthy servants. Yet as soon as we put our faith in Jesus... God forgives us for everything we have done and everything we are going to do. None of us will have to forgive someone more than what God has forgiven us for. But you might say, but Jared, I've, I've been properly wronged. Not just a silly garden bed that's out the front of the house. And I'll say, yeah, I, I, probably, I probably don't understand. I'm struggle, I struggled to forgive someone over a silly garden bed that doesn't mean anything in the scheme of things. But you know who does understand? Jesus. He was the perfect man, absolutely sinless, but got tortured and nailed on the cross as an innocent man for every sin we have done and every sin that we will do. That's not fair. Fourth point, God is a victor. God is a victor, and we know that he will defeat all evil. We read in verses fourteen to seventeen. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell in the hole he made. His trouble comes back on his head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. David is is saying here that evil brews and creates more and more evil. But will self-sabotage and shoot itself in the foot. All evil endeavors against God will come to their own destruction. This part reminded me of a story we read in Esther. Uh, there's a wicked man named Haman, who was all out to kill Mordecai. He is deceitful and schemes to kill the Jews. Then he creates his own gallows, which he is planning to hang Mordecai. His wickedness catches up to him, and the king summons for him to be hung on the very gallows he'd created to hang Mordecai. I think it's hard sometimes because we may not see the victory in our own time. We hear horrible stories about people being wronged and the offender seems to get off scotch-free. But this text gives us confidence that their deeds will catch up to them unless they confess and repent of their sins. Deuteronomy 32, 35, this is God talking to Moses. Vengeance and retribution belong to me. In time, their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. We can have joy in God as he always beats evil. As I said earlier, God is the God of perfect justice. We can trust he will give every evildoer what they deserve, not too little, not too much. God had the ultimate victory against evil when he sent his son down to earth. Jesus took all of our sins, And they got nailed with Jesus on the cross and died with Jesus on the cross. But it didn't stop there. Jesus then rose from the dead and defeated death and sin. If we bring matters of injustice to God, we should quickly realise that we are not innocent ourselves. And there is injustice in our own hearts. We cannot right these injustices by ourselves. But the gospel tells us that if we confess our sins, they're nailed on the cross. Jesus makes us righteous, and the Spirit makes us desire to be more righteous. If you're here and you're a Christian today, all these things are true about God. God is our Father, God is our Judge, God is our Avenger, and God is our Victor. Our sins have been dealt with on the cross. Jesus has taken our place, so we are righteous in the eyes of God. And we won't get the wrath of God. But if you're here and you don't know God today, we would love for you to consider putting your faith in God and, be- and believing that Jesus died on the cross for you. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life.